With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So you kind of almost want to take each scene and inject it with as many what-ifs as possible. Correct. To drive people to the next scene. Brilliant. That's exactly right. Perspective is everything in storytelling. You have to believe in the message of your idea. Brian Grazer, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And Brian, I have to say, this is like meeting one of my heroes, only because (laughs) you have been the creator of so many stories that have moved me from one stage of life to the next. Like without you, there would be this gaping hole in my life. You know, there would be no Apollo 13. There'd be no, you know, a beautiful mind. There'd be no splash. There would be no arrested development. (laughs) <laughs> but these are my favorite stories of all time. Wow, thanks. So, and then now you wrote this book, which I really have incorporated into my daily life. Um, you know, A, a Curious Mind, uh, The Secret to a Bigger Life, or The Secret of a Bigger Life. And it's this idea that you have basically um, used the concept of curiosity, your own curiosity, as almost like a superpower that's propelled you from, let's say, a childhood of, angst and dyslexia to being this, you know, super producer in Hollywood. So Thank you. I want to ask you first about Hollywood, then about the book. Sure, great. They're related. They are interrelated, absolutely. So it's just so, as in the book, the the vertical of curiosity is sort of a pure force, uh, is interrelated to storytelling and they cross over at certain times and uh and that's kind of what the book is about. It's about how well, they merge. Well, okay. Tell me but about you that. Should go to, Really? Yeah, tell me about how curiosity and story. And I, I read all about that in the book, but explain that to what? What do you mean by curiosity and storytelling intersect? Well, there's a lot of ways to to talk about that, and and in the book, I have really specific examples. But I, I kind of, as you know, I, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I was just a, a valley kid. I lived in the radius of about three blocks, and had lived in a very small world, but. As I was getting out of college, I started thinking, because I didn't know what to do, I thought I'd go to law school, but I, I stumbled across the, the idea of just the what if in life. Like, and the, my first real big what if was, what if I met a mermaid? And, and that became Splash. But 
Was that like, how did you think, what, what if I met a mermaid? Was that like a sexual fantasy or what was, what was the, <laughs> well, the background of that? <laughs> well, okay. Because uh, Tom Hanks did fall in love with Daryl Hannah. It did propel Daryl Hannah, you know, to be uh, this, this icon. Well, basically what happened is I was, um, it was less about, it began with, what if I met the perfect girl? Because I was in Los Angeles, and uh, as kind of an innocent 24-year-old kid, um, I was just on the verge of producing a movie for television, and it was called Zuma Beach, The Day in the Life of Zuma Beach. And I produced that, and I went from being just this sort of innocent, naive valley boy to that guy plus being a producer. I'm going to ask you a naive question. Yes. What do you mean you produced it? Like just for everybody at home who sees the word producer on every show, but what what do you mean? What did you do? Well, what I did um, on that movie, um, Zuma Beach, and of course on Splash, is I had the idea, the original idea. I thought to myself, well, what would the day in the life of a beach look like? You know, because I'd seen American Graffiti and I thought, okay, that was a 24-hour period essentially. And... I thought, well, what would what would if you did sort of an autopsy on, you know, a day in the life of the beach scene in Los Angeles? Um, what does that look like to me? And then I gave life to what that idea looked like, you know. And um, to me, it's it's not just what the words are. It's like, what does that fantasy look like, or what does that look like to me? And then I create scenes on what that looks like to me. And then I write it. And then at the time, I wasn't in the Writers Guild, so I would just do registered mail to myself, and that would protect me from being or having that idea stolen. And so, so by giving life to it, I then hired a screenwriter. It was named it was John Carpenter, oddly enough. And um, and all of a sudden, I was produced. I, I became the guy that was uh, the guiding visionary of that piece called Zuma Beach. So. As a producer, what you do is you have a, a creative vision as to what it should look like, what it's emotionally designed to do for a viewer, and then that has to be in alignment with a, f a fiscal vision. And so those two things have to be in alignment with each other, a creative vision and a fiscal vision, and then that's what it means to produce something. <laughs> and so, so on the creative side... You have the story, you hire the writers, the directors, you find the actors or the casting directors and find the, the places, the settings, the whole thing. On the fiscal side, you have to go around from studio to studio with your hand out and get money. Yeah, with your hand out and get the money. And then they say, well, how much do you need? And you say, three million. And they go, no, we'll, we'll give you one million. Then you say, well, do you mean you'll really give me one million? And if they say, yes, I mean, I'll give you one million. Then you have to figure out how to make what you thought was three million for one million, <laughs> and then and then how do you make money? Do you are you making money on how well it does, or do you make money on the difference between what you spend and what you save? Uh, you can make money all those different ways. Um, it's little less about what it cost and what you saved, and it's more about a fee. So it's the fee, your services fee. So whether it's the movie for TV or the feature movie Splash or Night Shift, you get a fee. And then you would get a profit participation. In television, well, they both apply. In television, for movies for TV, you didn't really get a profit participation. In movies, you got a profit participation. So you can make money both ways. And so, so everything, a lot of things sort of kicked off for you. And by the way, the way you just described uh, you know, your vision for 
the autopsy for a beach, you were asking out loud questions. Yes. So it seems like, um, and you talk about this a lot in the book, among many things that you talk about what curiosity does for someone, curiosity drives storytelling. Yes. Curiosity is propelled storytelling. And, and all stories, incidentally, need propulsion. So it's not only um, creates the story, but it, it gives life to energy. And energy is what movies, stories need. What do, what do you when mean they, by energy? Energy means, um, well, the story where, where you have a, okay, energy would mean you have a clear understanding of where the story starts. And then even before you start it, making it, you have to have a rig clear a clear understanding as to the trajectory of where that story is going and exactly what the end looks like in final. So you start with that. You, you, you I start with that template. I start with the template of well, for me personally, Brian Grazer. I was always a um, a title junkie. You know, like a title whore. Like so, I would basically feel like if I could get a t- if I could come up with any tit- if I can come up with a title, I can then create a story. Um, that's just the way I began my career. So I, I thought because uh, marketing was so important in these movies for TV and, of course, movies themselves. But in the world of movies for television, you really had to have a sexy kind of premise or a sexy title. There was a time where woman in danger was – women in jeopardy were 50% of all the movies on television. <laughs> and then that would change, you know, would go through a different cycle. But um, so, so basically energy is, um, is when the scenes have a lot going on in them and they're also leading you to the next scene and ultimately creates enough curiosity within the viewer where they're going, what does that next scene look like? What is, who, who, what's going to happen to our protagonist? What is the antagonist going to do to the protagonist? All those what-if questions live inside each scene and if they don't, you have kind of a dull movie. So you kind of almost want to take each scene and inject it with as many what-ifs as possible. Correct. To drive people to the next scene. Brilliant. That's exactly right. That's and, exactly right. And we've all seen movies uh, where they don't have that. And you go, well, I'm not even curious about what's going on or what is going to happen. I'm not interested. Well, there's a point where you lose interest, and that's because there's no longer curiosity. And so let's translate that for a second uh, into some other area of life. Where, where does the same notion apply in some other aspect of life, whether it's relationships or job or career? How, where can you say, yes, okay, we're going to take this arc and put a lot of what-ifs here? Dating. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. Um, I always tried to make my curiosity conversations the conversations that are that 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 are synthesized in this book, A Curious Mind. Um, every two weeks, I would meet somebody that was expert in something other than entertainment, science, medicine, politics, religion, all art forms, all the. So I always tried to make each one of those meetings like the best date I ever had in my life. Um, but going back to your initial question, I would say dating because. When you have the magic, the alchemy of that perfect date, you lose track of time, you're living in the what if, you're looking into her eyes or his eyes, and you're saying, well, what interests you? What is your reason? You know, what is, what are your purposes in life? What matters to you? You're constantly getting to the heartbeat of things that 
are going on between you and that person on your first date. And when you lose track of time and you lose track of even the action of asking the question because it's just existing, it's, pro- it's propelling itself without thought, that, is your per- that often is your perfect date, which is commonly known as just being in the present. <laughs> no, it's a really good point that um, you, know, you mentioned in the book, people like talking about themselves. So yeah. if you're on a date and, you, and you're really sincerely curious, not only is it you know, well-mannered, but they're going to enjoy it, the date more. Yeah, they're going to enjoy the date more. There's no question about that. But let me, let me, uh, and this I is. I mean, look, I had this epiphany. If uh, don't, do you want to say your thought or my? No, no, no. Go, okay. go with My your thought is this is that for the first 15 years of being a movie producer, I produced only, com- you know, really just only comedies Night Shift, Splash, Parenthood, Nutty Professor, Liar, Liar, three Jim Carrey movies, The Grinch, just like, and there was, um, a few of my movies, when I watched the rough cuts in the earlier movies, I was thinking, wow, that's really funny. And I'm watching the rough cut. I'm going, that's really funny. There was a movie where I didn't think at all. I just was, it was impulsive. I just started, I laughed. There was no space between what I was looking at and me involuntarily laughing. And I thought, later I thought, wow, that was actually really funny. But the time you think it's funny it's not that funny because you're thinking. You can't. So that's the which, same which thing. Which movie as, was the one that made you laugh so much? The one that made me laugh so much was the first Nutty Professor uh, with Eddie Murphy. It was uh, really, really funny to me. T- Tom Shadyak's been on this podcast. And he's great. Yeah. So he's, he's great. He's directed a lot of those. He's uh, very, 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 very gifted uh, movie director. He directed for me the first Nutty Professor, which was the best one, I shouldn't say, but was. And Liar, Liar. Yeah. A huge Jim Carrey movie, and he, he, yeah, he's great. And I'll tell you, for me on television, where, where I couldn't stop laughing, and I've watched. It's the only series I've probably watched five times over is Arrested Development. Wow, which is thank genius. you, thank you. I mean, there's so many different layers yeah. to that show that I don't even know if most people get. Like, you have to know Ron no. Howard's career, like no. his entire yeah. career. To most get all people that. don't get it. And by the way, I produced it. I didn't get it. They was smarter than I was. Why? In what way? What was something? <laughs> Too many. There were so many stories and so much inside stuff, and it was mostly it was just the multi, the amount of stories that were going on, the amount of characters, the amount of stories, and honestly, and it was subtle and dry, and you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't that kid that got all those stories. I could appreciate it, but I didn't like you. Get every detail. I might not have gotten every detail too. I bet you I, did. I bet you maybe did. Maybe I have to watch it a sixth time over. Yeah. I even what I did in our last season, I thought, um, along with uh, you know, Twentieth Century Fox, I said I, it was like a conspiracy against Mitch, the the creator. I said maybe we should, without telling Mitch, find a way to have fewer stories and focus on fewer characters. Mm. But then there was this core audience that was like like you that was just so digging it, and when. The network was going to cancel it. We had people picket Fox Studios. I, don't I can't remember understand that. why they canceled it. It was the best. Now they want it ever. back. Everybody wants to. It was really good. It was really good. So, so I want to get back to the. Yeah. I actually want to get back later to curiosity and dating, but I want to get back to what's the core of the book, which is you doing these what what you call curiosity conversations, which is just genius. And in fact, I kind of revolve my entire this podcast show around that idea, which is that this, this podcast is not really about anything other than me calling up people I'm fascinated by 
and going over to wherever they are and having what you call a curiosity conversation with them. So maybe describe describe a little bit what you what you mean by it and how you what it is, like how, how to do it. Okay. Well, what you just said, that urge, that thing in you is exactly that is the exact same thing that I access on, which is and I'll 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 say what you said, but it's just about in, being interested in disruption. Like I, I'm interested in getting out of my comfort zone all the time, almost to the point that that's the thing that makes me comfortable. Because I feel like when I'm out of my comfort zone, I am learning. I'm forced to think. I'm forced to have a conversation that moves you, and you moves, and 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 conversely, you're moving me. It's almost becomes a biochemical event in that, and that's kind of what a first date is. It's a that war. I mean, the best date becomes a biochemical event, and it clearly sometimes moves you to a biochemical event. So, um, yeah, (laughs) but so in any event, um, I'm just really interested in learning. I'm interested in growing. I'm interested in, um, uh, you know, and if I can apply it to a story, great, but mostly I just want to improve the way I curate my life. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, what do you mean by that? I, it, it, helps by these interesting experiences that take me out of my comfort zone by having to try to speak to a scientist or Edward Teller and not be on his level, but try my best to create something that we can access on There's mutual, where there's some mutuality, um, which is hard. It's a struggle to create mutuality with people that have their level of expertise or the way they see the world is so different than you. But there's something inside of that person and yourself that has to merge, and you just have to. And the goal is to try to find it. And why do I want to find it? And how does that curate my life? Because it makes me. I start my day on the baseline of being pretty grateful, and I want to fill my life with incidents that make me grow and allow me to celebrate the beauty of my life better than before. It, 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 so when I walk into a room that I used to not, where I wouldn't maybe talk to people or I'd be afraid they wouldn't talk to me, I can actually enter rooms with a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm the loudest, most outgoing guy. It just means that I approach it with a lot of confidence because I've had many conversations with many different types of people, and I think I'm interesting. And and by thinking I'm interesting, probably helps make me be interesting. Well, well, well. Let me ask you. Like, and it's a charitable gesture. It's just a good vibe, you know. It's it's a good vibe to ask other people, like, you know, like what's up with you or what's interesting to you. I, that sounded a little aggressive, but it didn't mean it. To be. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 you link curiosity to confidence, and is that because you know, in any situation, you've exercised this curiosity muscle enough that you could find something to get them talking? Yes. It is that. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's exactly that. I I feel kind of like um, that I've done it in so many different ways. I've survived so many different curiosity conversations. And survive is a good way to put it, by the way, because you mentioned in the book. Sorry to interrupt. No, you good. mentioned in the book at least two situations: Edward Teller and yeah. Isaac Asimov, where you really felt bad at the end of those conversations. Terrible. But but you learn from that badness too. Yeah. The, the, from the c- content and quality of that badness. Yeah. I mean, with Edward Teller, you, you know, he was a great uh, physicist. And of course, he was the father of the hydrogen bomb. And um, it was so uncomfortable. I just felt, 
he did everything to reduce my self-worth. <laughs> he did a very good job of reducing my self-worth. Um, and, uh, but I, when I, when I got out of that experience and into my car, I just reframed it. I just thought, wow, this was really horrible. I felt like a dope. Um, and, but I, I will figure out a way to do this better or I can, or, or the pain of that is an additive in my life. Cause I know I can kind of survive that pain. Like, I just yeah. recently three, two weeks ago went to Moscow for like an urgent meeting with very important people. And, uh, it was a complete wipeout. Like my, uh, but I gained a lot out of it for sure. I mean, so much, and I really can't talk How was about that wipeout. It. I I haven't talked about it publicly. Uh, it was just a wipeout because I was meeting very uh, very important people with uh, the only intent, the only purpose of just having one of these conversations, and I made it clear that. I didn't want to ask anything of them and nor should they ask anything of me. And it, w it didn't turn out to be that. And so uh, it was uncomfortable. Like they thought you were making a movie about them. A or? version of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I, all these curiosity conversations are to be with no agenda. Really. The only agenda is just personal growth, a connection, uh, um, growth, empathy, you know, it's these abstract things, you know, things that are, that sort of converts to like what would be called div divergent thought. I mostly think of it um, as, as that each one of these conversations that, that I have represents a dot um, in a larger constellation of dots and, and somehow, some way they do connect, sometimes years, sometimes 10 years. By connect, you mean kind of ideas from, let's say, talking with Russian oligarchs combined yeah. with talking with ballerinas might somehow result in a combination that's a movie or either or a movie idea. or just an insight or just an insight that enables me to survive that that later conversation or or they what they always do is provide me with an insight into some into perspective because and perspective is everything in storytelling it's everything is perspective i mean in a beautiful mind that what happened is I bought the book, A Beautiful Mind, with the intention, with a thematic intention of trying to make a movie that would help destigmatize mental disability. And that thematic intention existed 10 years before I even found, met John Nash and started this book, started to make this, was going to make this movie. But I realized that there was a movie already, and several movies made. One was called Dominic and Eugene, which is an objective look at schizophrenia. And I thought, wow, I'm not going to, what am I going to do that's different? And in the case of Connecting Dots, I'd met a woman named Veronica Denegre who was tortured in Chile and survived the torture in real time by creating an alternate reality, another story that she could live in while she was being tortured. So, I brought that thought, that insight forward 15 years when I bought this book, A Beautiful Mind, and I realized the way to make this movie a really palpable and emotional experience would be to shift the perspective and make it instead of uh, an objective perspective, a first-person subjective experience. So in a schizophrenic mind, there are many alternate realities, and I would begin the movie in an alternate reality and therefore would draw the audience in, in a way that is really, really emotional and visceral. Now, it could have failed, but it didn't. 
Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. 
But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. A lot of these movies that you've worked on, particularly, you know, the, all of these have been huge successes. They start off with this kind of idea that maybe the public might want to see, like, oh, it's very interesting to see Nobel Prize winning guy like John Nash in a movie. But then there's this deeper layer of mental illness and maybe another deeper layer of how do you find romance uh, amidst this mental illness as well and have a. And how does romance become the coping mechanism? Right. And, and the same thing happens in Apollo 13. It's not about. Uh, a, a rocket malfunctioning. It's about, oh my God, I'm scared to death because I'm in the middle of outer space and I have to solve this problem. That's and we can all relate to that a little bit. That's 100% right. I mean, and it never have, uh, any podcast or talk shows, anyone ever said that particular thing that that was, for me, people think it's about space. They thought it was about aerodynamics. They think about the space race, the Apollo program. To me, it was only about human resourcefulness. That was the only thing I could relate to. So it's almost like you not only use what if to get from scene to scene, but also to get from layer to deeper layer. Like what is the what is another real story we could tell slightly deeper here? Exactly. It's about feeling. I mean, like occasionally, you know, I do public speaking periodically and they'll say, Oh, you're a movie producer or television producer. And I always just say, I'm I'm my occupation, I'm just in the feelings business. Because and I really am because when when you communicate filmically, when you communicate, if you're not igniting feeling, you're not really communicating. You're not really reaching somebody. But I think that when feelings are ignited or emotion is ignited because of an image in a, in a scene or sometimes it's a word, then you're really communicating. You're really something's happening. You're igniting something that becomes indelible in human beings. You know, and then, but taking even a step back further, look at the beginning of your career. It started simply because you would go up to Lou Wasserman or you would go up to yeah. Bron Howard and 
say, hey, what are you working on? What can we do together? You would start yeah. these curiosity conversations with these people who became instrumental in building you know, this enormous career for you. Definitely. And like, yes. how could, so let's say I'm listening to this and I'm sitting, I'm commuting to work or sitting in my cubicle. What's, and I, and I think to myself, I have all these opinions that have guarded me forever from stepping out of my comfort zone. I don't have that curiosity muscle, uh, curiosity muscle exercise. What's the first step I could take? What can I do today? The easiest thing to do is uh, connect with, uh, you have to be. It, it, you have to have total authenticity and sincerity. But it's just, in other words, it can't be a by the numbers thing that we see our kids do and stuff like that. It's you just you have to connect to somebody that's in your vision right away. Like literally, there's got to be someone that's in your office or works for somebody else that you actually look at and that you create a set point through some eye contact. And you actually ask real questions of that you didn't ask, that you just took them for granted. They're just part of their Muzak, part of the environment. You or your neighbor across the street, you you change your body. Everything cha has to change your body language, your eye contact. And you have to really be earnestly, you have to be into a real conversation with somebody. And, and, and to be just honest, do that. And then, then you can start creating lists. Like I started to create lists, like a tennis player. I want to meet, I mean, I, I was a list crazy. I would see someone's name, someone's name or some little story in a magazine. I'd go, oh, I'm dying to meet that person. Or I love that subject of uh, genetics. How, who is in the world of genetics that would interest me? What part of genetics actually does interest me? Is it about my own personal genetics? Or is it about how genetics works and, and our understanding in the future, like Craig Ventner? Or what is it we want to know? So you start asking questions of yourself. I ask questions of myself. It's just peeling an onion. It's just pe it's constant like saying, okay, what, you ask yourself what if or what is that like or what does it look like? And then you get an answer. And then you go, well, what does that look like? In the case of Splash, I said, how do I meet? Literally, because I was in Los Angeles, that how do I actually meet a great girl? Because I dated a bunch of girls that were not great girls because I was the valley guy that became a producer. So the guy that couldn't get any dates was getting an endless amount of dates. But I found that they were all kind of the same. There were, in my case in Los Angeles, they were sort of somewhat vacuous, beautiful and vacuous. Uh, if you could get them a condo or a car, that made life better. There, it was just, I fell into this category of girls. And I thought, how do I escape this category and meet someone that is has more purity to them? Like, were they, when they speak to you, they're speaking the truth. It's, it's not, it's not being, you're not being handled. You're not being, it's not a packaged experience. So how, how do you, so I'm asking Brian Grazer for advice here. Like, how, what, how, how do, how do I find that? How do you find that girl? Yeah. Okay. Well, first you have to define what, what are that the qualities okay. that, that you look for, and then okay. how you find generosity. Them? I, okay, I looked for. I thought to myself, I want someone who has a gen generous spirit. I like a girl. Okay, I want a pr pretty girl, beautiful girl. Everyone wants a beautiful girl, but okay, th there's other things that have to be part of that. Um, beautiful. They have to be honest. They have to have a conscience. What uh, do you mean by that? A conscience where they realize if they say things to you, there's a, that everything is a consequence. 
they lie to you, there's a consequence. You're going to feel bad or they're going to feel bad. If they have a conscience, they'll feel bad too. Um, you, so you start defining, you know, like what I, I start defining it. So in the world out of fantasy, I thought a teacher or a nurse. Started thinking, where am I going to meet a nurse? Live near UCLA? I can drive over to UCLA. I'll walk the campus. You see girls, they're dressed like nurses because they are nurses. And you just say, hey, because you want to, you really want to know. I'm sitting here looking at you. So I'm, or you go to Cedar Sinai Hospital. That's two blocks from my, or no, it's a mile from my office. You walk around there, you eat lunch at places like Honda Veneta. It's a restaurant right across from Cedar Sinai Hospital. I guarantee you're going to meet doctors and nurses. And then what do you do? You go up to, uh, you're sitting by yourself. That's the hard your, part. Okay, you're sitting by yourself. Um, it's a little harder in the restaurant, but you can eat. You're sitting by yourself in the restaurant. You look around. You could say hi to someone else. Or you could just, it's easier when people are walking the street in the daytime. Nighttime is a bad time because people feel unsafe. The daytime. So you say, hey, you know, you, you don't say, give me directions. That's a, a fake thing. But you say, uh, I can't invent the line right now. But I, I did. Like when I was single, I could walk around the block here in Beverly Hills, get 10 girls' phone numbers, and five would go out with me. So this was almost, again, like a way of I mean, this has gotten kind of crazy, but I'm just, yeah, okay. No, no, I like okay. this. This, okay. is, uh, this okay. is perfect. <laughs> well, I thought, okay, so I would have categories. Uh, there were nurses, doctors. I thought nurses, Wouldn't doctors be too busy? Like they're going to be working 80 hours a week. Uh, I never got into the space of being too busy, but it was more just, is there a chemistry? But they could be too busy. I hadn't thought of that. They probably are. Athletes. Athletes are good. They're also very busy too. Athlete, real athletes are pretty busy, but they're dedicated. So, And if you're dedicated, you're usually connected to some, some truth, I, I found. You know, people that, you just think of these traits that, turn you on or that make you feel safe or, or attractive to you, you know? So like I said, generosity, a generous spirit. I think people that want to teach are interesting because you're giving away part of yourself. That's kind of beautiful. I like those things. So I thought of those things, versions of those things, created an embodiment of a character. And then I thought, Okay, but that's just, how can I make this really theatric? Like, what would bring a, like, a fantasy? And I thought, well, every girl wants to be a mermaid. And as a dude, I, of course, would like to meet a mythic character like that. So then I think, okay, the, then I thought about there's a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale dealing with a mermaid. And I thought, what is that? And then I started thinking about that. And then thought of offshoots of mermaids because there's a popularity to mermaids. You know, there have been, there've been many stories. And I thought... Okay, I'll superimpose this mythological symbol on top of this girl, this definition of a girl that I think is cool and or that I think admire and would be interested in, and then that became my girl. And and you started pitching this idea. Every studio was saying no. And I like how again you used curiosity to bridge the gap between no and yes without feeling resentment along the way. You were persistent. I was really but with persistent. Curiosity. Yeah, I was persistent with curiosity. So basically, the like, how do you get over the no with curiosity? <laughs> okay, this is how you do it. You you have to ask. You you uh, get a lot of no's, an endless amount of no's, and you realize I've gotten so many no's that uh, I've gotten so many no's. Why have I gotten the no's? 
And you don't resent anybody giving you the no, even if they just hang up the phone on you. I only resent it if they say no and they have to tell me why they gave me no. Like Mm -hmm. if they have to break down my ego or confidence or Mm self-esteem. So if I say why you saying no, then they can say it. But if they just voluntarily go, well, they say no, and then they tell you, then they try to break you down. Mm. I'm not digging that very much. Because they're breaking you down because they're building themselves up, like they're teaching um, you a lesson. Or? It's more no. I think it's more about that they don't want you to win at it because then they look wrong. Mm. Then that then it breaks them down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in any event, but I, you have to recontextualize things. So. When I got you know fifty nos or seventy five nos on a mermaid, I start thinking why are they saying no, and then I think to myself, well, maybe the perspective of the story is wrong. Maybe it shouldn't be from the girl's perspective. You know, it shouldn't be from like, what if I meet a what if I meet a uh, what if I get out of my merc mer world and meet a mortal? Maybe it should be that we don't think about that perspective, but we think solely our introduction to the movie is through the guy's perspective. You know, you change perspectives. Um, I always found like recontextualization is the best way to overcome no's. So when someone says no, you find a different way to ask the question. And what if they don't uh, let I mean, you I, ask the I, question I fam- again? Actually, famously, so, so, slight, so, somewhat famously, there was an executive at United Artists at the time that said, that, uh, what called you a pest. She called me a pest, exactly. Anthea Silver. If you, I slam the door and you come in through the window, is what she said. Good memory, exactly. I slam so, so, it. Brian so, Grazer, oh my God, you slam the door, he comes in the window. You can't, you lock the window, she comes in the chimney. That doesn't work, he comes, dills it, build, d- digs a hole under the, under the building. But not know? everyone can do that. Like, what gave you kind of, again, the confidence to think, okay, I'm going to go back to this person who said no to me five times? Because I know nobody knows. I'm certain nobody knows. I, I think no is only a temporary point of view. There's almost a, a, a spiritual aspect of this. That Definitely. The, the idea that nobody knows, that, that there's more questions than answers, essentially. Yeah. Or, yeah, good. And so, so, so yes. is that what gives you the confidence to kind of keep approaching? Well, you have to believe in the message of your idea. So I was always, in the Mermaid movie, I always believed in the message. The message was love. But I thought it's possible that I'm not expressing my message well. I thought that maybe I have to shift the perspective of the exterior of the message. So there's a message that lives inside the interior of the story. The exterior of the story are the characters and the story itself. So I thought maybe I have to change the story or maybe my representation of the story is not high quality enough. That means like the way I tell it, and or the way I wrote it. There's there's a little bit more, and I can see this. There's like a playful aspect to you. Like I can yeah. see it. So it must be when you're going back to the woman at United Artists, it's not like, oh, I have something else to tell you about this. You must have like played a little bit with like, hey, I'm back again. Yeah, or, I have to make fun. You have to have fun. Yeah. You have to get, you have to make you have to wrap it in some sort of fun things. You can be self So she's willing to listen again. Yeah, you can be self-effacing. You can know that she's going to her car at six o'clock at night and you just happen to be at the car. Oh my God, I'm at your car. This is your car? You know, they, that's how I met Lou Wasserman. I mean, you just have to have fun with it. You you don't want to be, I mean, I have people that are pushy on me because uh, they they either, either know that I've, I'm a movie producer and or they know that I've written a book about curiosity and I give speeches and they say, you've got to meet me. And then they're, but they don't do it the right way. 
And you, you have to have fun with it and you have to do research. You can't just be, you got to meet me. You have to research Brian Grazer or conversely, I have to research that person that I want to meet. You have to know what interests them. If you're just asking, if it's just you're being forceful, it's, that's not attractive. But if you know something about them and about what they like and what they want or what interests them or you, uh, they know music, but you know more or, you know, th those things that are additive to them. I've had a lot of people say, I really want to work for you. I go, why? He goes, because I know I could learn a lot. I want to go, that's not a good reason for me. That's a good reason for you. If you think you could teach me a lot, then I can say, what will you teach me? Then we keep going on that conversation. But just because you can learn a lot, that's a very selfish perspective. You know, it seems like there's almost an evolutionary aspect to this because there's, there's two aspects of curiosity that you've spoken about, which has sort of driven the development of the human race, which is storytelling. Because for millions of years, how do we communicate? There's danger in the forest. There was no written language, so you had to tell stories. And what's beyond, what's in the jungle? And, you know, curiosity drives that, that fear almost uh, in those stories. And then human connection. You, you talked about a little with the yeah. dating, but you describe it a lot in the book as kind of this hidden, but perhaps the strongest power of curiosity is this you know, ability to, to connect with people. And... You know, and again, and then there's another part of the book which I also found fascinating, which is that nobody else talks about curiosity. There's all these studies about innovation or about connection or about storytelling. Nobody mentions story, story, <laughs> uh, curiosity in these studies. Why is that? Are we afraid to admit that we don't know things? Well, I think we are. I mean, I think that I mean in the way I grew up, and I think I. Um, I think that public education doesn't really allow for a lot of curiosity because it, because it, it's it's um, and this is not a it's it's more a judgment of the efficiency of the system and less about the qualitative part of the system. Meaning that when you have thirty kids in a class or thirty to fifty kids in a class, there's not a lot of time for kids raising their hand and every question being asked or curiosity itself being nurtured in the way that I'm that we're talking about. Maybe because they're, they're also teaching by feeding facts, which they're then tested on in standardized yeah. tests. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're fed answers rather than questions. It's, yeah, and it's not really about how the fact works in life or the facts application. It's just about getting that fact right. 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 So, um, and I think that we just, um, um, you know, Americans, and uh, I, could, uh, I would just say that uh, I think that our educational system is a little less about saying, I don't know, you know, I don't know is that wasn't popular, you know, and, and now it's on its way to being more, uh, you know, in the, you know, Vogue, you know, I guess, I don't know, but it's, I think saying, I don't know was not a popular thing to say. And, you know, by the oh, way, I didn't say that very well, <laughs> but no, no, but I, but I get it because I yeah. think about it from the point of view of a newscaster or a news show. You're not really allowed to say, I don't know. If someone goes on a show as yeah. like a pundit, they're not really allowed to say, I don't know. You're it's still part of the culture. Yeah. So like the media culture or the way we get our news and information, yeah. nobody says, I don't know on TV. Yeah. And by the way, just look at the presidential race. They think they, they're there. Every answer, they either know everything and have an opinion about it. Or they're asked a question and they answer with an answer that is completely unrelated to the question. Right. So no one's benefiting from that. 
So, so of all the curiosity uh, conversations you've had, I mean, oh, and you've okay. had you've listed like hundreds in the back of the book. Uh, I have two quick questions to sort of wrap this up. One is, what was the biggest gap between the sort of fame or esteem of the person you were talking to and yourself? So now, as you've gotten older, it's probably leveled out a lot. But when you were younger, let's say you were in your twenties, trying to talk to the, the, Jonas Salk, yeah. What was like the biggest gap ever in all these curiosity conversations? If that could be quantified. Okay, there's a bunch of, okay. Well, the greatest disparities early on were, of course, uh, was Jonas Salk, who I, I just mentioned. I think I met him in 1984. Muhammad Ali was before 1984. What'd like you ask Muhammad Ali? I don't remember. It was more like just how. Well, first of all, I was I was surprised that he was as big as he was because he was he's you know because he's so elegant you mm -hmm. know in the way he boxed and communicated and uh, I was shocked at how big he was. It was more like I asked him dumb. I mean, I I don't remember. It was like, where do you live and why are you how are you able to find a how how are you able to find a stable environment while you're traveling all over the world and you know how how do you have the discipline for I mean, version of how do you have the discipline for the kind of training that you have to do and are, I would of course ask him the same question as I asked Jim Lovell. Do you ever are you ever fearful? Hmm. And well, they both said no. Muhammad Ali said no. No. So someone's punching He's, him in the face. He, no, he said no, and Jim Lovell said absolutely not. And wow. so did all the astronauts uh, that we that we use in our astronaut training school for Apollo 13. Mm. No. I said, do your eyes, does any part of your physiology change? No. I go, you're trying to tell me that your pupils don't dilate and something. And they just kind of held to no. Mm. I didn't interrogate uh, uh, Muhammad Ali on that level because I didn't. I'm the you know wasn't able to do that, but um, but that could have been a big gap. Yeah, too. like you were young and he was. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other people that no, that was pretty. That was pretty. Of course, Princess Di. That was a huge disparity in power. In and myself. that's one where you were very playful. Like you said, uh, right? You were you were yeah. not going along with royal decor at all. Yeah, I was very playful because I thought this is a once in a lifetime chance. Once in a lifetime, how am I going to be able to have a real connection with this person? And I thought to myself, look. She's got to be interested in the mischievous stuff of gossip and Hollywood, and she has to be. So I I started like with a conversation, like like sort of Hollywood gossip with her, and then as you know in the book, I escalated to the point where I said, "Do you think you can get me a bowl of ice cream?" Because there was no ice cream for dessert with this this black tie dinner of three hundred and fifty people or so, and she said, "Sure," and she got it, and then I said. Why don't you share it? And I hand her my spoon, and she was everyone shocked. Like the waiter, people shocked. were shocked. Everybody was shocked. It was so trippy. But she did it, and it was like. But I thought the only way I'm going to have impact on her, and the only way I'm going to be able to create a memorable exchange with each other for is to is to not be conf a conformist. So, so not be scared and don't be a conformist. So it seems like hand in hand with curiosity, and this. This comes out in the book, but it's not really expressed in the book. Yeah. Is this aspect of playfulness also? Curiosity is is we're, we're back to being a kid a little bit. We're, yeah, you know why, why, why? But that goes along with the playfulness of a kid. Yes, it does. And it's sort of you have to relax yourself so you can smile. I mean, smiling, having an open nature to you is pretty helpful too. But, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's playful, and I never thought of it until I mean, so you thought of it. I didn't think of it. 
Well, I'll, I'll give yeah. you credit also. Yeah. I got it from your book. So, uh, no. <laughs> so, so it seems like um, the other important thing, as you mentioned, and this is, I'll bring it full circle, yeah. is that you started off with you wanted to get out of your comfort zone every day. And, you know, gratitude mm-hmm. is, a, is kind of very, um, and you mentioned gratitude, but that's a very easy way to stay in your comfort zone. Like, oh, I'm really happy with the way things are. I'm mm-hmm. grateful for this. How do you push yourself to, to go from gratitude to, okay, now I'm going to twist things just a little bit so I'm out of my comfort zone? Okay, a couple things. One is I just don't want to atrophy in any way. I mean, we know as guys that if you don't exercise, you kind of atrophy. It's the same thing with your brain. And anyone knows that your brain, it's just the same thing. Gratitude is more like this for me. Gratitude is I wake up and I go, wow, I'm so lucky to be, have grown up in this country for one, to have the freedoms that we all are awarded. Uh, gratitude to me is being just physically, you know, physically capable of do, walking, running, climbing, you know, like I'm, I'm born with all the, you know, the fortunately physically, you know, and everything's intact, you know? Um, so I want to use it all. I mean, I want to use my physicality. I want to use my mind. I want to, how do I use my mind? I mean, I didn't ever look when I went to, my first year of college, my col- my speech professor said, took me aside, his name is Mr. French, said, I'm going to recommend that you quit college. I don't really see any that you have any functionality that's valuable here at college. You're not going to be able to integrate. You're not going to be able to survive. I think you should go, should go to an occupational school. I say this to you as a, someone that cares about you. It's just not. So that stuck in my mind. Of course, I stayed in college, graduated college, but it was emblazoned in my mind. And so I wasn't a very good public speaker, public speaker, but I now do it quite regularly because I just want to continue. I love to test myself because nobody is disallowing me from testing myself. But now you've had such great success for over such a long, consistent period. Um, what do you do today to test yourself? Like, what do you do tomorrow to test yourself? Believe me, I have a lot. I do. Like what's one thing? I, I fa- today I just FaceTimed the guy that's head of Google Ventures, FaceTime. And this guy knows every deal he's seen, every deal he knows the metrics on everything, and I'm just trying to keep up with him. I'm having this exchange. Oh, sorry, I talked to some – well, I talked to him, David Crane. But before that at 9th – okay, I met the, the, the creator of, uh, of another Google company called DeepMind. And DeepMind is the – uh, far and away, the greatest sort of AI think tank in the world, categorically higher than any Rand, uh, Northrop, what? And it's called DeepMind. They have four hundred of the greatest scientists and PhDs in the world working at DeepMind. So I, because I met him six months ago, I arranged to have a conversation with him today. He's in England. I was in LA. At nine thirty in the morning, it was so gratifying. DeepMind is the is the company and uh, that create that play went to Korea and played the game Go and beat the Koreans. Sure, that was amazing. It was the first was time a computer ever beat the yeah. world champion of Go. Of Go, and what was so beautiful is that he explained to me that his level of humanity and sensitivity to the game 
was able to he was able to enter all the different facets, uh, including the spiritual dimension of what Go was really about. And so when they won, it wasn't thought of as an aggressive act; it was thought of as a collaboration mm-hmm. that they were learning from each other, the Koreans, and and a deep mind. And I thought that was really powerful. That it was a beautiful kind of symmetry that occurred. So, so that's an amazing thing that you. So that you, I, you today. said, "What have I done? I did those two things so far today, and I met you, and then I'm off to having lunch with Tina Brown, that was once the editor of uh, Vanity sure. Fair and, and the New Yorker." Well, sounds very exciting. I'm so happy I read your book, and I recommend uh, "A Curious Mind" by Brian Grazer to anyone who's who's listening to this. Plus, I recommend watching Arrested Development at least like six times over and, and all your other stuff. So thanks again for agreeing to see me. I actually approached you about a year ago, I guess when the first book, when the book first came out, we couldn't arrange it, but now I'm glad we did. And uh, thanks for joining me on the You're show. You're so welcome. Great conversation. Yeah, awesome. thanks. Thanks. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.